0: of the essential virtue of godliness by talking a little bit about William Wilberforce. This is a man that is revered for his tireless efforts before Parliament to abolish the slave trade in England during the 1700s and the early 1800s. William Wilberforce was born into a very wealthy family, but he was plagued with many physical infirmities. Uh, during his youth, he finally went to the university but didn't do very well, uh, even though he was extremely intelligent, a very brilliant man, but he really had no purpose and no desire to do anything of any consequence. And in fact, he uh, graduated without any honors and had indulged himself in the excesses of university life of that time. Upon graduation, he ran uh, for a seat in Parliament, mainly because he didn't want to pursue the family business. And um, he got a seat in Parliament, and at age 21, he became friends with a man by the name of Isaac Milner, who led him to Christ. Isaac Milner would meet with him, and they would read religious books together and discuss them, and it picked Wilbur's, uh, Wilberforce's... Um, Uh, interest, and eventually the Spirit of God convicted him of his sin, and he became a believer. And his lifestyle changed immediately, dramatically. And he sought the guidance of another spiritually-minded man by the name of John Newton. And you may recognize John Newton's name. He is the author of the text for the song we sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton, for years, had been... A a slave trader ran a um, a, a slave ship, and it was John Newton who who brought him along spiritually in many respects and discipled him, but also persuaded him along with William Pitt, another friend of his in Parliament, to use his influence and his intellect and his wonderful uh, gifts of oratory to get involved in the anti-slavery movement that was going on in England at that time. And this man lobbied for 24 years before parliament. He was a he was a gadfly about this matter of of slavery and pestered parliament about it for 24 years talk about endurance before he saw slavery abolished in the British empire in 1807. And then he continued all that did was say it's illegal to trade in slaves. It didn't it didn't free the slaves that were already there. And he spent the rest of his life lobbying for the freedom of the slaves in England. And in 1833, in Parliament, the slaves were freed three days before William Wilberforce's death. This is an amazing man. But ridding Britain of slavery was not his only burden. He wrote this, he said, God Almighty has put before me two great objects. The first, the abolition of the slave trade. And the second, he said, is the reformation of the manners or the morals of England. And while maintaining his impeccable personal testimony of godliness, he challenged the corruption and the immorality that was around him, whether it was in his peers in government or whether it was in the gambling and drinking establishments of his day. And his his crusade for godliness, there were many religious people in England, but he was concerned that they did not possess any godliness, and, and in many cases, not any true religion. And he wrote a 450-page book in an effort to reform the religious practice in England. And here is the title of it. The title is almost as long as the book. A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in this Country Contrasted with Real Christianity. Now that is a mouthful. And I'll tell you what, the book is an amazing book. I'll have to confess, I haven't read the whole book. I read an abridged edition of it, simply called Real Christianity. About, I read that about ten years ago. And I was impressed with the amazing godliness of this man. I was impressed with his doctrinal soundness. But most of all, I was impressed with this man's boldness for what is right. He said this of his countrymen. Take such people aside, these people who claim to be religious... Take them aside at an opportune time and lead the conversation to the matter of religion. The most that can be done is to get them to talk in general terms about religion. They appear lost in generalizations. There is nothing specific nor determinate. There is nothing to suggest a mind that is used to contemplate on specific realities. Vainly you strive to bring them around to speak on this topic. One would expect the subject of God to be uppermost in the hearts of redeemed sinners. But they elude all your endeavors. If you make mention of it yourself, they do not give it a cordial welcome. Indeed, they greet it with unequivocal disgust. At best, the discussion remains forced and formal when speaking about their little concern for holiness and their self-indulgent and sensual lifestyles. These are the people who claim to be religious and claim to know God. These were the churchmen of his day. He said the bulk of the Christian world is too little conscious of the inability of their own unaided efforts, he means without God's help, to produce holiness of heart and life. Each day they are not accustomed to using humbly and diligently God's means, that is the word and prayer, for the reception and the cultivation of His help. Nominal Christians have avowedly established a system of decent selfishness. Recreation is its chief business. Amusements multiply, combined and varied, to fill up the void of a listless and languid life. Some take up sensual pleasures, he said. The chief happiness of their lives consists in one species or another of animal gratification. Mortify the flesh with its affections and lusts is the Christian precept. But a soft, luxurious course of habitual indulgence is the practice of the majority of modern Christians. That moderation is that wholesome discipline of restraint and self-denial, which are the requisite to prevent the unnoticed inroads of the bodily appetites, seem wholly unexercised. And then he closes his book with this appeal to the true Christians. To those who really deserve to be called true Christians, much has been said incidentally throughout this book. I have maintained that they are always most important members of the community. No sound or experienced politician would deny that. But we boldly assert that there never was a period when this was truer than of the present time. For wherever we look, we see that religion and the standard of morals are everywhere declining abroad more rapidly than in our own country. However, at home, the progress of irreligion and the decline in morals is enough to alarm every thoughtful person and to fill us with foreboding about the growth of evil. We can only depend upon true Christians to give some remedy against its decline. Singleness of purpose. That sounds like arete. Consistency of behavior and perseverance and effort are needed. Only true Christians can provide these qualities. Now, what is important in this brief biographical sketch of this man. And what really impressed me is not merely what he said, though the content of what he said is thoroughly biblical. What impressed me most is the fact that he said it. He's speaking to the religious people of his day. His peers. He understood peer pressure as well. And a godly man will not remain silent. When evil is present and good is under attack, he is not a coward in the Lord's cause. And we're going to talk about this matter of not being silent when evil is present and when good is under attack. This is a major part of godliness. Godliness is not just being a really, 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 really nice person. Godliness means that you get on God's side of every issue, even if it costs you everything. That's what William Wilberforce did. And so Peter says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control endurance and to endurance godliness. All of this that you have added now needs to be used in a cause. The cause of God. And in the chart, you notice that godliness completes the picture of it, what it means to wholeheartedly love God. Column three will show what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Godliness is the crown and the summary of the four personal virtues of arete, knowledge, self-control, and endurance. And godliness is the launching pad to take us into the, personal, into the social virtues of brotherly kindness and love. And by the way, godliness is a frequent topic of Peter's discussion in this epistle of 2 Peter. Well, let's look at the definition of godliness. It's a Greek word, eusebia. It means worship that is worthy of God. Barclay defines it as awe. In the presence of that which is more than human. Think about that for a moment. I would imagine that if, while I'm speaking up here, an angel were to appear next to me, and we all knew that that was an angel by some means, we would all have a sense of awe about this. Because there is something here in that, a presence that is more than human. And that is the the kind of sense we ought to have about the fact that our God is with us here now. There ought to be an awe in us about the reverence, and a reverence, because that which is more than human is present. And it is worship which befits that awe, and a life of obedience which befits that reverence. In fact, it is this comprehensiveness of meaning that makes this word, Yusebiah, Godliness, the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is that awareness that God is present and He is powerful. And that's exactly what godliness is talking about. Godliness is a vibrant personal relationship with God that manifests itself in actions consistent with who God is and with what He is doing in the earth. It means getting involved in what He is doing. It's not just being really, 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 really nice or really, 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 really good. It's not just being good. It's doing good. It's active. I call it the engine of wholeheartedly loving God. If you look at the little diagram there of the train, godliness represents all that makes up the engine of loving God with all our heart. And godliness is made up of devotion. That is that arete, that choice, that purpose to become like Christ. And the knowledge of God, that is what fuels devotion. And with that devotion are these disciplines we've been talking about in the last two sessions of self-control and endurance. Those together, when you put that devotion and that discipline together, you have godliness And it is that spirit-illuminated devotion, that arete and that knowledge that keeps our lives pointed in the right direction and on the right track. And it is the self-control, spirit-enabled self-control, and the spirit-fueled endurance that gives us the strength to go down the track. Together these virtues form, I believe, what it means to love God with all of your heart. And godliness then, as, as a way of life, becomes the force which pulls along the cars of good works, the brotherly kindness and the love. By the way, those good works of brotherly kindness and love will not get very far down the track without the engine of godliness. All you have in brotherly kindness is a little bit of sentimentality without the strength of godliness and without the devotion to Jesus Christ of Godliness. Our engine of godliness has to be firing on all four cylinders. Arite, knowledge, self-control, and endurance. All four cylinders have to be, I don't know how many cylinders most trains have, and maybe my illustration breaks down. But we've got four cylinders in these two columns that we've got to keep going if we're going to have the strength of godliness. To switch illustrations here a little bit, to switch metaphors, I, I like to think of godliness as the harness on a pair of two horses we have the horse of devotion uh, down uh, going this way and the and the and the, uh, the horse of discipline and they have to stay together godliness keeps them together because that devotion by itself can go off into a sentimentality and mysticism and pietism and other other things that are that are problematic scripturally and discipline by itself can go off and be hard-nosed arrogance and self-determination and that kind of thing. Godliness keeps them together, harnessed and pulling the right thing for the right cause. Again, we come to Titus 2, 11 and 12. We've seen this before. But Paul speaks much of godliness. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us, godliness trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We cannot be content with just seeing and savoring Christ as we hear about today. And I'm, I'm grateful for any emphasis upon Jesus Christ and seeing and savoring Christ. But that is not enough. We must also be living under the lordship of Jesus Christ to be godly. Godliness is cultivated by continuing to develop the previous virtues in order to deploy them in the cause of Jesus Christ. By the way, godliness is merely grown-up, mature commitment. First column commitment, grown-up, looks like godliness. The godly man possesses The heart of a psalmist. And right away our minds think of David when we think of godliness. A truly godly man, folks, thinks much of Jesus Christ. You can't be godly and have no thoughts of Christ. By mere definition, it means godly And like when we look at David, here's the heart of a psalmist whose mind and whose thoughts were often going to his God. And a man who is truly godly is struck with the horror of his natural self-centeredness. And he knows the the sting of guilt when he considers his wayward thoughts, when he considers his selfish ambitions, When he considers his injury to other people and when he considers his failures to keep the laws of God, it bothers him because he thinks much of Christ and he experiences burning shame before God when his selfishness is exposed. He's not concerned about what other people think. Remember David when he, was, when he was dealt with by Nathan about his sin and he writes in Psalm 51 against thee and thee only have I sinned? He'd sinned against many other people. But a godly person sees that his biggest offense is against the biggest person and that is God. And he's not worried that other people know this or that. What his concern is, I've been exposed. God has seen what I am. That's his concern. And he, experiences, and he experiences, a godly man experiences piercing conviction. And he knows the painful chastening of his father who is trying to draw him back. And as he gazes on the cross, he sees in that cross the awfulness of his sin and the amazing love of his God. And he has also experienced the exhilaration of reconciliation with God. He has heard God tell him, the Father has assured him, you have confessed your sins and I will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And no words are more dear to him than that. He knows what it means to be reconciled with the Father he has wronged. And he is humbled more by the Father's grace to him than he is even by his sin. He can't imagine this kind of grace. And he doesn't forget that the Father brought him out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set his feet upon the rock. And he will spend his days where many shall hear it, and shall fear the Lord and trust him. And he cries with David in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. And he says he has not dealt with us after our sins. No rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as the heavens are higher than the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. God has dealt with us tenderly, people. God has dealt with us kindly. God has dealt with some of us very firmly. But because he loves us. And the godly man thinks much of that, and he thinks often of that. Because he has a heart that is devoted to Jesus Christ. Wilberforce describes the devotion of the godly in this way. He said, if we look to the most eminent of the Scripture characters, the Bible personalities. We find them warm, zealous, and affectionate when engaged in their favorite work of celebrating the goodness of their supreme benefactor. Their souls appear to burn within them, and their hearts kindle into rapture. The powers of language are inadequate to express their transports of delight. They call on all nature to swell the chorus and to unite with them in hallelujahs of gratitude, joy, and praise. The man after God's own heart, and he's speaking of David here, abounds in these glowing expressions more than any other writer. The psalmist's writings appear to have been given to us in order to set the tone, as it were, to all succeeding generations. The godly man loves to speak of the goodness of God to him. As a sinner and while nothing more characterizes the godly man than his love of the Savior's work at Calvary, nothing erodes his progress toward godliness more than today's entertainment mindset and the modern church's casual Christianity. Folks, we've got to get the message of second Peter: moral impurity. Moral corruption and licentious living in the name of grace are entirely destructive to godliness. And those are themes that are very much a part of the modern church today. The godly are not casual about their Christianity. The godly are not haphazard about their Christianity. Godliness is not cultivated with game councils in hand, but with Bibles in hand it's not cultivated by hours spent before a television screen or a movie theater. Godliness is cultivated by hours spent during the week with a Bible in hand. Godliness is not accidental. It is intentional. Godliness is fueled not by high-energy Christian pop concerts or sentimental kumbaya campfire experiences or charismatic experiences. Godliness is fueled by the daily pursuit of Christ in His Word. And folks, that is why we as believers must personally and regularly observe Christ in our Bibles. Meditate upon what, he's, what we see. Repent in contrition and commitment and praise to the Lord and Savior with what we see. Our lives must become Christ-centered rather than self-centered. Many today are Christian, but few are godly. Godliness takes time. I hope you won't get discouraged at this point when you see this high bar of godliness before you as we've described in this session. I have to be honest with you that studying this has been very convicting for me as well. We've got a long way to go. Godliness grows by cultivating these virtues to where they become your lifestyle. Godliness is the fruit of a grace-filled, word-filled life. And, and don't be alarmed when I say hours a week at this. That's the eventual goal. You may not be there yet, but that's, where we're shoot, that's what we're shooting for. And, and I, I will give you a caution. If you are a person who is filling your life with all of the activities of the world, the entertainment of the world, and all of the, thing, all of the connectedness of the world to make sure that you're up with everything that's going on in the world. You can fill your lives with that and you will have no time for God. And if you decide, I'm going to put away that stuff, I'm going to quit all that extra searching, uh, surfing and I'm going, to, I'm going to quit all my obsessive texting and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't text or you shouldn't ever surf, but we are obsessed with this in our culture and we have no time left for God. And if a person decides, you know, I'm spending way too much time on that. I'm not spending any time for God. I'm going to carve out some significant time with God. I will, I will warn you and caution you that it will not be easy. Because when you do even take 30 minutes, and you haven't taken that time perhaps for a long time to be in your Bible, you will find, if this has not been your habit, you will find that your mind does not want to focus on what is in front of you. Your mind is going all kinds of directions at once. And all kinds of thoughts keep coming in, and nothing seems to pop out on the page, and your mind is agitated, and you're restless, and you figure, well, oh, I just this is just not for me. Well, you have to cultivate that kind of attention to the Word of God. It will take some time, but just like this guy who has to study, and he has to say, God, I know you want me to put my time in these books. And I know that with your help I can do this. You have promised to help me and give me the grace. And with your help I will. And he's got to collect his thoughts too and bring them back to what he's doing. That's part of the discipline of life. And over time it can happen where you can sit down and spend hours with the Word and it seems like it went by like that. And you can't wait for the next time to do that. That's where you want to get. You may not be there yet. Don't be discouraged by that. You've got to start where you are. It's, it's just like if you take up jogging or running. You can't do it really fast or very long. And if you're a little bit older, a lot of things hurt when you're done. And you have to gradually, ex- gradually extend that until it's becoming your regular habit and your regular practice. Mental habits and mental disciplines are the same way. You just keep working at it until you've got it. Let me illustrate this for you for just a minute. Most of you are sitting there with a syllabus or paper in your hand and a pen. I want you to, somewhere in the margin, write your name, your first name. Just write on the piece of paper. I'd like everybody to do this. If you've got a pen handy, I want everybody to experience this. Write your name. If you forgot what that is at this late hour, check your driver's license. (laughs) Okay, now I want you to switch hands and write your name with your other hand. I love watching this. <laughs> okay, what, what, was, what you were experiencing here is, with, when you're writing with the other hand is that now you're trying to do something which is not your normal habit. If something is habitual to you, it feels very automatic and it, and it feels very comfortable. You don't even have to think about writing your name with the first time you wrote it. But the second time, you had to think about that. And it felt really strange. It felt really awkward. And, And, you know, if your name is Bob, you have to think, all right, now, which side of the ball does the stick go on, you know, as you write your name? It takes some deliberate thought. What you have just experienced is the difference of something that was habitual for you and something which is not habitual for you. When it is not your habit... It feels awkward and it takes deliberate thought. Did you know that the disciplines of the Christian life are like that as well? That you can, you can develop this Bible reading and this prayer so that it is just the natural thing for you to get up in the morning and open your Bible and spend time with God. And it's not a chore. You don't even have to deliberately think about it. That's just what you do. I don't mean that you get into a mindlessness about it. Because if you're going to meditate on what is here, your mind has to be engaged. But it's very natural for you to do this. It is not awkward. And folks, the neat thing about godliness is that eventually, I don't mean this stuff just becomes, just merely habit, But it becomes your normal practice To obey. I'm not saying there's nothing in you that resists it. But you're just used to obeying God. And it's your normal practice to just tell the truth. It is your normal practice to reject lust. I'm not saying that there are never any battles. But I'm saying there are habitual practices in walking with God that just become natural for you. Just like living with your spouse. They're just things that are just very natural. This is what we do when we're together. It's not mindless, and it's not that you have that you're not have no thought for her or for him. But you know it's helpful to her. You know it's helpful for to him, and it's just your practice to do it because it's right and it helps her and you love her. Godliness doesn't have to be this intense battle that it is right at the beginning. And again, I'm not saying that you're not tempted. I have to pray often, Father, you are the one who is able to keep me from falling and to present me faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. He is the only one that can make that happen. But I tell you what, it is a wonderful thing that a lot of the things, I don't fight a lot of the habits I used to have. I don't fight a lot of the battles. I have new battles, but I don't fight a lot of the ones I used to have. Godliness takes time. And when you begin opening your Bible with any kind of seriousness and you take that time with God, you're going to get under conviction about a lot of things. You take a sheet of paper and you just start writing them down. You've got to be serious about it. I've gotten up in the middle of the night. I've, w- I've awakened and think about something and then realize, you know what? I really shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And I've gotten up in the middle of the night and gone to my study and wrote down a, and, and write down on a piece of paper what I need to remember to take care of the next day. You've got to take seriously when God convicts you of sin. And you start taking it seriously. That is cultivating our That is cultivating that I want to become like Jesus Christ no matter what. And you will find as you begin to be serious about that, God will begin pruning a lot of things in your life. Because he says, when you begin to bear fruit, I'm going to purge you that you'll bear more fruit. And you'll start getting under convictions about things you never were under conviction about before. Attitudes you have, critical things you've said about other people, critical things you've said to other people. Things that never bothered you before will start to bother you. You know what that is? That's God purging you to bear more fruit. And you take that seriously too. And if you've got a bad habit of that, then you meditate on the scriptures and you allow God to change that and you exercise self control in that with the Spirit's power. And you endure under that and don't give into it, even external pressure when your friends are doing that or whatever. And you grow in godliness. And you find that you have to eliminate sinful indulgences and worldly companions and time-wasting activities. And God will send some trials your way. And that will just increase your desperation for the Word and you will find grace and you will find comfort and direction. And by the way, this isn't just the normal course of growth for believers who are starting out. This is the normal course for the rest of our lives there are new challenges the older you get the more stuff hurts and the more stuff doesn't work and you have all kinds of new challenges and your knees creak when you get up and just all kinds of other things that go that come along and people you love die and there are new challenges And the mature believer has to continue the same kind of growth if he's going to run on all four cylinders. Well, the thing I want you to see in this session is that in godliness there is the heart of a psalmist. He loves God. He loves His ways. He loves His Word. And it may not be that way for you yet. But if you're working on the other virtues, it will come to that.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, that's a good one right there. I um, If you're like me and you hear teaching like this or preaching, many times I was listening to a message today that was about an hour and 20 minutes long. And when the message is done, uh, it, it's interesting the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of Satan. And Satan can take a... a a uh, message like this and discourage you and to say things like, you're never going to make it. The mountain's too tall. The path is too long. Uh, you, If you haven't got it by now, you're not going to get it. Uh, he jumps on people's shoulders who've been saved for a little bit of time and says, oh, there's no way you could never be like so-and-so. Jumps on somebody that's been saved for some time, And says, you remember when you had that zeal and you don't have it anymore? Man, what a failure. All of that comes with good teaching of the Word of God. What you have to be able to do is to decide, okay, am I being condemned by Satan or am I being convicted by the Holy Spirit of God? Because the Holy Spirit of God will tell you, this is what I want for your life. Now follow me. In order for you to do that, you have to change masters. In order for you to do that, you've got to cultivate the virtues that God says. I love the statement that he made that Christianity or godliness is not accidental. It's intentional. It's something that you put your mind to. Do you ever put your mind to something and just said, this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this. I don't like to do it, but I'm going to do it. Probably every adult, at least hopefully every adult in this room, has done that about at least one thing in their life. Well, God in his word is saying, why don't you do that? with me. Why don't you just put your mind to the fact that you're not yours anymore, you're mine. And if you fight against my purpose, then you're not going to live the life that I have planned for you. But if you if you step in line with my purpose, then you're going to have more than you ever desired. And the bonus is this, I get to use you to transform someone else's life, which is the purpose of your existence anyway. And so I, I hope that you're not discouraged by this. Uh, as I previewed this lesson, I just thought, man, Lord, this is this is discipleship on steroids on steroids. It is so, so important to talk about godliness. And for so many decades, churches like ours have preached that godliness is only in the superficial actions of hair length, of dress, of the kind of songs that you sing. And according to the Bible, it goes much deeper than that, much deeper than the superficial It's not about being really, 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 really polite or really, 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 really nice or really, really, really uh, hospitable or really, 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 uh, you know, a giver and generous. No, it goes far beyond that. It goes all the way to a heart that says, God, I want to be like you. I don't know if you're struggling with your time with God or not. But one of the questions in in uh, in the pamphlet that I put out for you is what are three concrete things that you could put into place to move your weekly quiet time minutes to hours? Three concrete things. What are three concrete things that if I stop doing this, I would be able to do this? If I pursue this, I'll be able to cut that out. If I What are three concrete things that you'll be able to take your devotion time with God from minutes to hours? Now, I don't know how uncomfortable it is for you to pray to God. I don't know how uncomfortable it is for you to read without being distracted. I don't know. But I will tell you, it is sweet and melodious when you get into the rhythm of the Holy Spirit of God. And you can open the Bible, and there he is. And you hear him very clearly. And you know exactly what he's talking to you today, uh, talking to you in that moment about. And and that's that's how you develop these virtues. So I want to encourage you take this paper, read through these definitions of godliness, allow God to use them, write them down, put them in different places so you can remind yourself that that's the pursuit. It says adding to your faith. Now, it's, again, not to you know, to go back and talk over Brother Berg, but what we want to do is jump from saved to godly. We just want to do that. But do you understand that you cannot fulfill any of these biblical definitions of godliness without pursuing the excellency of becoming like Christ? Nor could you do it without exercising self-control or practicing endurance, and you can't do any of that without the knowledge of God. So there is a reason that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible in the order that he did is so that you could develop into the godly person that God wants us all to be. Man, what a tremendous lesson. I hope that you were challenged tonight. Um, I I hope and pray that God would bless his word in us through more messages like that. I want to ask you to pray. Would you pray for my wife? She's going to have a um, she's going to have an epidural on Tuesday. She just lives in pain continually, and, and it's just not a good thing. And uh, so she's, you know, gone down the road of a whole bunch of other things that she's tried. She certainly doesn't want to be on oral medication all of her life. And so uh, my son-in-law had tried something like this. Other people have had them in our church, have had uh, epidurals and, and it has worked for them. So uh, she's just a little concerned about it, and she would like you to pray for her if you would. So that's this next Tuesday. I'm going to take her up to Santa Clara and get that done. And I know that would encourage her if she... Knows that other people are praying for her, and I, I, I'd appreciate that. I would like to ask you to pray again for this Sunday and for our Sunday services that God's people continue to come back to church and and uh, get out of that uh, you know that uh, place where they've been for the last year and, and uh, things like that. And i Lord's burden my heart today just about preaching uh, about the specificity of the Christian life, and now more than ever, and our our society that we live in needs needs to see. Uh, exactly what William Wilberforce said was the problem with uh, his day and age. Think about that. In 1833, he was talking about Christianity that was just surface. And it wasn't making a difference in the morality around them. And and, and yet God, God specific, what's amazing to me is just within the next 35, 40 years of that statement that William Wilberforce uh, would write, there would be two great awakenings, in both in the European continent and here in the United States, uh, of just that. And, and how did that happen? By godly people being godly and just continuing to to be Christ-like. And so uh, I'm just of the opinion that revival is still the most important thing that can happen in our country and that God still is the God of revival. He's just looking through vessels to send it by. And I would sure like to be one of those vessels, wouldn't you? And uh, so let's pray tonight ask God to bless us as we dismiss that we would be able to live by faith in a godly manner. Heavenly Father, you've given us, a, even according to to this passage, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Lord, you spoke about being godly and the godly in Scripture over and over again. And I think sometimes the devil loves to pin that on other people and, and pin us down to the fact that we can never be like that. And yet, Lord, the very Word of God tells us that we can be like that through Christ. And so I pray that you would, Lord, that you would help us to examine our lives and, and that you would help us to see how superficial we've become in our spirituality. And that you would convict Christians all over the world, but especially in America. God, we are so passive and we are so immature. We are in need of being taught over and over again just the, 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 the fundamentals of our faith. And yet, God, you want us to go on and exercise our conscience through your word by faith. I pray, Father, for the maturing of the saints for the equipping of the saints and for the devotion of the saints of God, that we would be humbled by your grace, Lord, that we would remain in awe of your holiness and of your power. And, Father, that that would turn our lives to uh, you and away from the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of our own deceitful heart. And, God, that you would help us to walk in a godly manner in a sober fashion, Your grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And so, Father, may we be students of your grace. And, Lord, may we be soldiers for Christ. I pray, God, for our church that you continue to wake her up, that you would give her a heart, uh, Lord, more than just a heart to assemble, but a heart to serve, a heart to get in the rhythm of Christianity because we so need it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. And, in, and onto the will of God, onto the purpose of Christ, and find out what you're doing in this earth and then join in what your endeavor is. I pray, God, for uh, my wife, that you would continue to heal her. I pray for strength. I pray, God, that this appointment coming up would be a help to her. And, Lord, we just want to walk in the light that you've given us. And I pray, God, that, uh, that you would relieve her. I thank you for a, a, a wife who's saved and has a desire to live for you and a desire for righteousness, a desire, Lord, to help our family to live in a godly manner. And I pray that you'd bless that. And I pray, uh, Lord, that these coming days we would see moms and dads, uh, Lord, um, like Hannah and Elkanah, raising Samuels and giving our children back to the purpose of God and training them in the way that they should go. Lord, I pray that we would see the abundant fruit of that. And I pray that you'll bless the word of God in our hearts tonight, that you would, as we dismiss tonight, that you would be gracious, and helpful, uh, Lord, that we would be responsible with the truth, and that you'll be glorified in all of it. Thank you so much again for saving us. Thank you for giving us the grace of your Bible. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be in it tomorrow, and help us to be dedicated to be searching for your face. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.